So I'm sure we've, we've saved the, uh, the best for last. Uh, my name is Bob Gelfond. I run a hedge fund, and I won't be visiting any barns with Patrick Byrne. Uh, so uh, uh, th this uh, panel is on um, the path to fundamental reform. You know, we sort of take it as a given that uh, the idea of central banks are, uh, are a really bad idea. And uh, I'm sure we're going to hear some very interesting ideas from our speakers. Um, you heard earlier from, from John Allison uh, about how it's an immoral, uh, it's not just a bad idea, but an immoral idea. And I think you know, part of sort of going from, from A, to, A to Z, getting from here to there, um, we have to sort of uh, make a lot of arguments, but making the moral arguments certainly part of it. But I also think making an argument of ridicule is, is part of that process, too. And we're at the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. The, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union wasn't because they had a lack of smart, well-educated economists who, you know, who couldn't figure out the price of wheat or other commodities. Yet we take it as a respected idea that it's OK to put a bunch of smart people in a room and let them figure out what the right interest rate is or what the right macroprudential regulation is. And you know, we need to uh, make fun of these ideas and let these people know that we're going to look at them, hopefully in the not too distant future, much the way that we looked at the blood letters of, uh, of the past and the way they were able to solve medical issues. So let's, let's, let's hear our, uh, our panelists and their ideas. Uh, again, the biographies, the detailed biographies are in your handouts. So just briefly, uh, Jerry O'Driscoll, who's a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, Judy Shelton, the uh, co-director of the Sound Money Project at the Atlas Network, and Norbert Michel, the research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Jerry. Thanks very much, Bob. Uh, thanks to Jim Dorn for once again inviting me to address this conference. I, I am really pleased to see Atlas and Heritage here, that, that so many think tanks have now come to the realization that this is a very, very monetary policy, monetary reform is a very important issue. Uh, now, we, my paper is a bit different from the other ones you've heard today. Uh, we've heard papers on various kinds of monetary reform, various kinds of mon monetary systems, gold, gold commodity standard, uh, free market currencies like Bitcoin and others. And we've heard also about, and I think this has been very important, a number of papers, presentations on the constitutional and statutory and regulatory impediments to any kind of free market solution to this. But I'm not here to endorse any of these proposals or uh, to come up with another one. What I want to talk about is what I see as the path to monetary reform. And I think it's the path that it doesn't matter what reform you think is going to come out, out of it. I think it is a path that is a proven successful path. Um, and what I'm proposing is the formation of a committee for monetary reform. But let me, that, that's where I'm going to end up, but let me back up. And I threw this idea out last year, but it was like in three paragraphs, so it never got developed. Um, my idea came from observing actual committees and commissions with an intended purpose in operation. And the first one, because it gives me, uh, I, I'm going to extract uh, how it operated 
It's, it's not the substance of this committee that I want to push, but how it operated. And that was the Shadow Open Market Committee, which was formed in response to Nixon's price and wage controls and to the intellectual climate that believed you can control inflation by just uh, mandating what a price would be or a wage would be. And the idea of Bruno and Meltzer informing this and a bunch of other economists who went along with him was we started to have to change the intellectual climate to teach people that inflation is the product of monetary policy and inflation can be controlled by monetary policy. That was the goal of that particular committee. What I got out of it is it was very important that it operated by meeting on a regular basis with the same people meeting every six, in the case of that committee, every six months, because each meeting built on a prior meeting. And so there was progress and there was consistency. Not that everybody agreed, but that they shared a common philosophy at the time of what we would, some, some would call a monetarist philosophy, but just that you control inflation by trolling money growth. The second uh, uh, prototype that actually comes closer to what I'm proposing, and also happens to involve Alan Meltzer, but that's not what's essential about it, is uh, the commission that was formed by an act of Congress in the aftermath of a series of financial crises in the 1990s. First, there was the Mexican peso crisis, then the Asian financial crisis and the Russian financial crisis, and the IMF was running around the world solving these crises. Some people would say saying the IMF is solving a crisis is like saying somebody with a bucket of gasoline and throwing it on a fire is improving matters. But, uh, the, you know, the Republicans were really kind of getting educated about uh, why this was not necessarily the right model, the congressional Republicans. And uh, their price for passing the refunding the enhancement of the U.S. contribution to the IMF was a commission. And um, the way this commission operated, again, under the chairmanship of Meltzer, was first, that now this is different, but it, it comes closer to what I have in mind for the Committee for Monetary Reform. It had a deadline. It had to issue a report, do all its work in a set period of time. Um, and obviously, there was a member, there were 11 members of this uh, commission. So there was continuity. Um, the, you know, there were a lot of rough edges among the members because six were appointed by Republicans, five by Democrats. But as they had to meet and the realization that they had to come up with a document, uh, people begin to work together. Um, and the, uh, the, the sixth uh, commission only had six months, which was suicidal. Uh, they held hearings, they heard testimony, they received papers from academics, and out of that, they produced a report. So what I'm advocating is that this Committee for Monetary Reform is going to produce something that looks like this, hopefully a little better graphically. This was printed by the government printing office because it was a government commission. I'm proposing a private commission. And the reason, and, and there's a history of private commissions in this country especially for monetary reform. And if you want to learn a little bit about them, just look it up in the Friedman and Schwartz monetary history. So the idea would be that there would be certain members of the committee, and I actually discussed what might be the ideal number of members of a committee, and, six, and I give reasons why 6 to 12 is the right number. Um, 
and they would hold hearings, hear testimony, uh, receive papers from academics. And the idea is that the outcome would be agreement on a concrete plan for monetary reform. Now, I don't mean the ultimately perfect monetary system, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the first thing, and I have an argument in here in the paper, it's a familiar argument, is that uh, it, it's going to be a rule-based system or it's not monetary reform. If it's not rule-based, then it's just what we have now. Now, by rule, I, I mean rule in a broad sense. I consider a free banking system a rule-based system. It's run by the rule of law. So by a rule, I don't mean a monetary rule that, uh, that that's a predetermined uh, idea that it would be a monetary rule like a monetarist monetary rule, fixed rate of growth and money. I just mean that monetary reform must involve a, a monetary and banking system that operates by rules. In, in the sense of rule of law. Um, now, I also suggest some principles uh, that, that would be useful if they were adopted. Not many, because it turns out as soon as you start talking about principles, it may sound very broad, but they have very immediate consequences. My first principle is that no rule can involve the attempt for the attempt to control real variables. And the argument is familiar. There is no long-run relationship between monetary policy and real variables. If you attempt to influence real variables, then you are necessarily going to get involved in short-termism. And that's the system we have now. And monetary reform has to mean, if, it's any, if there's any meaning to it at all, not the current system. You will go to the current system. You will return to the current system if whatever reform you come up, uh, come up with involves the attempt to control real variables. Now this, I wrote this down and I suddenly realized the Taylor rule violates this. The Taylor rule attempts to control both real and, and uh, nominal variables. I don't think we want to eliminate the Taylor rule, but someone else is going to have to solve this conundrum. But it did get me to realize there's a corollary to my first principle, because the reason Taylor came up with this is, well, first of all, he says he was observing policy, and he said this was what was working. But the justification is it's the only reform rule that takes account of the Federal Reserve Act, which has a dual mandate. So it seems to me the corollary of my first principle is a second principle. One thing that has to be gotten rid of is the dual mandate. Otherwise, you're going to start trying to control real variables, and uh, you're going to end up uh, back to where we are now. And so it wouldn't be a reform. The third principle, which I think is very important, is the best cannot be the enemy of the good. There is no nirvana monetary system. Any process of hashing out an actual concrete reform proposal is going to involve trade-offs, not just trade-offs among the people on the committee, but trade-offs among desirable features of monetary systems. And the second reason I say the best should not be the enemy of the good, for reasons that have explained here already today, we are not going to start monetary reform by abolishing the central bank, even if every single person on that committee 
wanted that gold. There are all sorts of things, especially these legal and constitutional and regulatory issues, that are going to say you don't start with that. And here I'm agreeing with Jerry Jordan. Um, so you're probably going to have to come up with a kind of reform, thank you, that um, in, the liter in, the, in the public discourse today is like return to normal central banking, return to uh, you know, a, a minimalist Fed, um, controls, rules, uh, according to which the Fed must operate. Now, interestingly, this past summer, a bill was passed, um, the Federal Reserve Accountability and Transparency Act of 2014. And th this bill, which obviously I mean, it wasn't passed, it was introduced, this bill, if it were passed, would say the Fed has to follow a rule. The default rule is the Taylor rule. They can choose to substitute another rule, but has to justify why they're substituting another rule, and it has to be another rule. So there's a kind of already the political dynamic, there's a dynamic out there, and I, I don't want to put too much into an election, but this might be one concrete benefit from this recent election, because the Republicans, at least some of them, are open to ideas of monetary reform. And then, of course, there's the development that was already in place last year in which John Allison referred to, which is the uh, Brady's, uh, Congressman Brady's uh, proposal for a National Monetary Commission. Now, that would be a government commission. But he and I were on the same, the same panel last year. He and I were on the panel, and when I gave my paper, he was just nodding his head. He realized that a private report, which already has gone through a lot of the issues, that he, his committee, any committee that the Congress appointed, and, and already sorted out a bunch of things and actually has a recommendation. I, I, I'm sure the commission isn't going to simply take the report from the Committee for Monetary Reform. I mean, people just don't operate that way. But it, it would have cut through a lot of the weeds and it would have narrowed choices down and it would have been a starting place. He realized this kind of idea would be very helpful to him. Um, thank you. So... Uh, the idea I have is, uh, I got three minutes, so I'll jump back, I'll jump to the conclusion. Um, and I give reasons in the paper for each of these. So you, you have a committee, it meets regularly, like the SOMC met regularly, but it has to be more frequent than every six months. Uh, it would, uh, I, I suggest the work of the committee could be done in a year. That's probably ambitious, but the way things are moving along, I think we have a political opportunity. And if we wait and, and let this committee go on for two years or three years, the time will have passed, and uh, have the members meet regularly. Uh, some meet the wonderful thing about a private committee is some meetings can be in public and some meetings can be in private. It's not governed by an open meeting law, and just work this out. And I think that the found, founding of the Cato, Cato Center gives it a kind of institutional sponsorship. I don't mean that the committee members should all be from Cato. I think that would be a bad idea. Uh, I see any number of people in this room that, that could be good committee members. And uh, the only thing I, I hear I talk about is there's one thing that if you've ever been involved in one of these things, you know, and if you haven't, you can't appreciate it. You've got to get the right chairman. And it's an accident of history, and uh, you know, not on my time here, but I'll tell you how it ended up being Meltzer, and it made all the difference in the world for the uh, 
it came to be known as the Meltzer Commission. It, it was the International Financial Institution Advisory Commission. No one has called it that since the first few meetings that the Meltzer Commission took. And uh, with that, I will conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Good afternoon. It is so nice to be with like-minded people who understand that we need fundamental monetary reform. It's so comfortable to be among those seeking an alternative to central banking, which increasingly seems like central planning, because we think money is supposed to function as a useful tool for measuring value, not as the means through which government attempts to implement economic and social policy. But if we're going to forge a viable path to reform, the subject of this panel, it's going to require broad acknowledgement outside this auditorium that the world's current monetary arrangements are broken and dysfunctional. Let me tell you about a monetary conference I attended earlier this year in February in Vienna because what I heard there surprised me. The keynote speech was delivered by a distinguished man who was much revered by the members of that audience, mostly European banking and finance officials with quite a few people from the International Monetary Fund. I was listening very closely to this speaker as he explained how in the years leading up to the 2008 global financial crisis, we had, quote, Volatility, persistent imbalances, disorderly capital movements, currency misalignments, currency wars, and capital controls. We had no system, this gentleman said. He continued, quote, central banks were focusing exclusively on a misleading yardstick, ex post inflation targeting, while they turned a blind eye to the massive expansion of credit and the formation of huge asset price bubbles. The speaker was Jacques de la Rosière. He was managing director of the IMF for nine years, starting in 1978, which was not so long after the Bretton Woods system had ended. La Rosière is 85 now, and in that same speech, he noted that our current monetary state of affairs is sometimes called a non-system. But in his opinion, it's actually something much worse. It's an anti-system. And this anti-system brought about the 2008 global financial crisis, the fallout of which today, he said, quote, is threatening the very fabric of our societies, unquote. Now, if someone like that is sounding the alarm in those kinds of intellectual circles. Does it mean policymakers will be emboldened to find an alternative to central banking? Uh, well, it helps. But central banks have such tremendous power, such enormous influence over financial markets and whole economies, they are so firmly entrenched as agencies of government, headed by government-appointed officials, with near total discretionary authority, 
that forging an alternative approach or even putting modest restraints on their power is difficult. Is it doable? Maybe. But we need to define in tangible terms what we mean by free market money. We need to offer concrete proposals. One thing we've learned is that floating exchange rates do not qualify as free market money. They haven't worked out in practice as theory predicted. We've had more currency volatility, not less, since the end of Bretton Woods. Milton Friedman thought that destabilizing speculation would not take place under floating rates. He didn't anticipate that governments would build up huge war chests of foreign exchange reserves to thwart demand and supply pressures on currencies. He did not foresee that delinking the dollar from gold would substantially empower central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, and strengthen government control over the private sector, his absolute worst nightmare. So while we all treasure Milton Friedman, on floating rates, it turned out he was wrong. In the 1990s at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, uh, my office was close to Milton's. He was a senior research fellow, I was too, and he was always willing to discuss floating rates versus fixed rates. In a 1994 National Review article, Milton Friedman acknowledged that since 1971, there had been large, sometimes violent movements in exchange rates, his words, which he blamed on government intervention. He also declared in that same article, quote, a true gold standard, a unified currency, is indeed consistent with free trade. Free trade was the primary reason for creating the gold-linked Bretton Woods monetary system, which began operating in 1947. It was a matter of both efficiency and morality. Nations devastated by World War II needed to rebuild. A stable monetary platform would encourage international trade and capital flows, increase economic growth, raise productivity, raise income levels, and raise living standards. That all happened. French economist Thomas Piketty, in his book Capital in the 21st Century, describes the two decades from 1950 to 1970 as the golden age of growth for Europe. After 1970, the growth rate dropped to less than half. But Piketty doesn't mention the near-perfect correlation between that golden age of growth and the Bretton Woods era. His book is 700 pages. There's not a single reference to Bretton Woods. Paul Krugman is another economist who praises the 1950s and 1960s when America was at its best with a strong middle class, lower income inequality. But somehow Krugman too misses the correlation with Bretton Woods, 1947 to 1971. In his New York Times column, Krugman has only disdain for any consideration of gold-linked money. Speaking of the New York Times though, there was an op-ed published in July promoting the advantages of a gold standard. 
It said, with a balanced budget and a gold-backed currency, America's economy could be even more formidable than it is today. Oops. What it actually said is, with a balanced budget and a gold-backed currency, China's economy could be even more formidable than it is today. The author, Kwasi Kwarteng, is a member of the British Parliament, and he goes on to say that if China went on a gold standard, it would provide a more secure basis for an international monetary system than the floating rate regime that Nixon inadvertently created in 1971. I agree. But if it's such a good idea for China, a way to demonstrate global economic leadership, wouldn't it make even more sense for the nation with the dominant global reserve currency, deepest capital markets, and strongest commitment to free markets and free people? Shouldn't America be the one to link its currency to gold? I'd like to sketch out a rather uncomplicated way to start doing that. We should issue a gold convertible bond. By we, I mean the United States Treasury. A gold convertible treasury bond would be comparable to a regular five-year treasury obligation with the face value representing what the bondholder receives at maturity. But with this difference, that face value is stated as both a dollar amount and a specified amount of gold. At maturity, the bondholder receives either the face amount in dollars or the defined amount of gold at the bondholder's option. So the bondholder is protected from losing purchasing power in terms of gold. If the dollar gets debased relative to gold, he is compensated by receiving the gold. It's like a tips bond, a treasury inflation-protected security which compensates the bondholder for lost purchasing power from a debased dollar as determined by the CPI. This doesn't have to be a big deal for the treasury. It's just a new product being offered to investors. But it would be a big deal because the next country to offer a five-year gold convertible bond would likely be China. And then just imagine, there's a US financial instrument, a sovereign obligation, redeemable five years from now as either one ounce of gold or $1,240. That's roughly today's price of gold times the yield on a five-year treasury. And there's a Chinese government obligation redeemable five years from now as either one ounce of gold or 8,300 yuan, which means there's an implicit fixed exchange rate between the dollar and the yuan because both financial instruments are worth the same thing, one ounce of gold, in five years. The world's two largest economies would be taking an initial step toward what could become a major paradigm shift. The market would decide the value of each of those gold convertible bonds with investors paying a premium or purchasing at discount depending on whether they expected the dollar or yuan to rise or fall relative to gold. Now, there's one organization that might object to gold convertible sovereign bonds, the International Monetary Fund. After Bretton Woods ended, the IMF changed its rules. 
Members can do anything they want on exchange rates. Float, join a currency block, peg to a basket of currencies, whatever, except for one thing. IMF members are not allowed to peg their currency to gold. That's more than ironic, it's downright perverse. As I see it, and I agree 100% with Milton Friedman on this, after Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, the IMF lost its reason for existence. It should have been abolished. So now, if the US or any nation, China or Germany, Italy, France, countries with large gold reserves, if a nation wants to forge a preliminary link between its currency and gold through the issuance of a gold convertible bond, if it wants to join with other countries in building a new, stable, international monetary system with fixed exchange rates anchored by gold, and the IMF says no, maybe it's time to withdraw from the IMF and for each country to ask the IMF to remit the gold it paid in when it joined. Because this monetary anti-system we have today is anathema to free trade, anathema to the ideals of Bretton Woods. If America still believes in the power of free markets and the potential of free people, we need to fix what broke. And our nation should lead the effort to build an orderly and ethical international monetary system. Thank you. Good afternoon. There are many excellent papers on monetary policy reform ideas. Some of them are rather general, and others are uh, sort of very detailed, but on one specific idea. And what I'm going to try to do is sort of blend those approaches so that I come up with a list of reforms that I think that we should be pushing for in both the near term and in the long term. Uh, and listening to Jerry's wonderful speech there, I think that what I'm about to say is completely compatible with Jerry's idea. Uh, and I even, I even have one person in mind that would make a great member of the commission. Just throwing that out there. So what I've done is I've split these up into two groups. And basically what I've done is, is sort of tried to come up with a, a, a way of categorizing these things based on how many people we could get on board. And there are some reforms, I think, that there's a very broad consensus in that, yeah, something needs to be done, but then things break down. So in other words, there's, there's a, everybody's on board, everybody who wants to reform the Fed is, is on board, but exactly how to go about doing that is not necessarily so clear. Uh, and then there are others, though, that are much more focused in that we, we do, in fact, have a fairly broad agreement among reform-minded economists on exactly what should be done. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to split those up based on these ideas. And to do this, I've sort of talked to a couple of people who I know are more moderate than I am. Uh, otherwise, we would have had one list, and it would have been too long uh, to, to do here. So I think this is going to work out. Um, 
to give a little bit of context for the policies that, or for the, the errors that justify these reforms, I go through just three of the major Federal Reserve type, uh, Federal Reserve failures. And of course, that's a much longer list, but just three. The first one is probably the most glaring failure of the Fed, and that's its failure as a lender of last resort. Uh, if we compare to what it was intended to be when it started, and if we compare it to the classic prescription for a lender of last resort, the Fed's track record here is abysmal. Within the first few decades of operation, it basically screwed this up in every way possible. Uh, it was supposed to smooth out seasonal currency shortages. It didn't do that. It was supposed to, supposed to provide liquidity to the entire market. It didn't do that. It was supposed to avoid lending directly to troubled firms, and it didn't do that. If we think of the classic Bejeu dictum, uh, lend without limit to all solvent firms against good collateral at high rates, it didn't do that. Uh, two of the worst episodes of failing to provide liquidity would have been 29 and 37. In 1929, of course, it decided that it wasn't going to lend any money to member banks that were even suspected of stock market lending. And the money stock declined by about a third because of that. And then in 1937, when we were just about coming out of the Great Depression, the Fed went ahead and doubled member banks' required reserves. Uh, so those were two really bad examples there. Uh, they also have a very long track record of providing, uh, of providing credit to troubled firms. They've been unable to do that. That sort of started at the beginning in the 20s. We know that they were doing that then uh, through the discount window. And just about every decade since then, you can find some examples of that. Anna Schwartz has a 1992 paper that our friend Walker Todd is very familiar with. Uh, it lays out basically the entire history of the Fed's misuse of the discount window, uh, particularly egregious cases of this in the 80s uh, and into the early 90s, uh, where, they, uh, where the Fed was lending to banks that it knew had poor camels ratings. And the short version of all that history is that the crisis that we just went through in 2008 the emergency lending that we saw there is basically a culmination of a long-term trend. Uh, it's not really anything new. The amount might be a little bit different, but the, the whole idea is really nothing new. Um, they, the, according to the GAO, after the 2008 crisis, in the emergency lending facilities, they lent about $16 trillion out in individual, to individual firms uh, at about $13 billion below market rates. And that's from the GAO report. The next major failure of the Fed, I think, would be this one, the, as their, their failure as a regulator. Um, aside from the fact that they've been a regulator from the very beginning, uh, we know that in 1933, they became the regulator for all bank holding companies, uh, or I'm sorry, all holding companies that owned a member bank. In 1956, they became the primary regulator for all bank holding companies. And then in 1999, when supposedly we had deregulation, which Still don't know how that comes across, but at, at any rate, uh, in 1999, if you wanted to become a financial holding company, the Fed would let you do that only after they certified that your holding company and all of your subsidiary depository institutions were well-managed, well-capitalized, and Community Reinvestment Act compliant, among other things. Uh, sounds like deregulation. <laughs> and I'm not going to go through the entire history of bank failures. Of course, we had a bunch of bank failures during the Depression in the 70s and in the 80s. Uh, all of this happened on the Fed's watch. Not that it's all directly their fault, but it certainly happened on their watch. Um, 
At best, the Fed didn't predict the crises. Uh, at worst, it contributed to them. A couple of ways that it directly contributed to them, you can think of repurchase transactions or repurchase agreements. Easier to just call those repo transactions. The Fed basically introduced these into the commercial banking system. All a repurchase or a repo agreement is is a form of short-term debt that we pretend isn't really debt. And they did that specifically to allow banks to not have to hold as much capital against them. Uh, the Basel requirements are another perfect example of this. The, the Basel capital ratios that we know. The Fed actually came up with something called a risk bucket approach in the 1950s. Again, with the intent, exactly that. Lower the amount of capital banks have to hold against certain types of assets. Well, the Basel requirements are actually based on the risk bucket approach. They also failed in the sense that Ben Bernanke in 2008 testified before the Senate that all the large major institutions, financial institutions, had very solid capital ratios, that there were no capital problems at all. Might not always want to believe central bankers, but that's what he said. Uh, the other failure that I'll mention is their, their failure as a macro stabilizer. Uh, if you look at the full era of the Federal Reserve, there really has not been any measurable improvement in macroeconomic stability. They have an excellent reputation for improving macroeconomic stability, but it's unfounded. Uh, George Selgin, Larry White, and Bill Lestrapes have an excellent paper that goes through all the different ways that this is, that this is a fact. Uh, Christina Romer has done work in this area. The short version of all this is that, uh, one, the Fed's record looks much better than the pre-Fed era, partly because of some data issues. And without going too far down that hole, if you just think about all the data that we use now, all the, the macroeconomic data that we use now, none of that existed before the Fed. So that should at least give you a, a reason to, to pause and consider whether things are really as good as they say. Uh, the other is extreme myopia. If you focus on 1985 to roughly 2007, sort of the great moderation period, well, Everything looks pretty great, not just the Fed's track record. But that's kind of where this comes from, I believe, uh, their, their excellent reputation. Um, but it's even true uh, over that period that you have some, some particular issues to look at and question their record. Uh, overall, it's clear. Recessions have not become shorter. They've not become less severe. They've not become less frequent. Uh, when we look at inflation, it is true that the volatility in inflation has calmed down in the Fed era, but average inflation is actually higher. Most people here probably know that. But uh, so you, you sort of have an improvement in one respect, but not an improvement in the other respect. And another way of thinking about this is that the, the rate of change in the price level has stabilized in the sense that if we have a period of inflation, it tends to be followed by a period of lower inflation now. That doesn't mean that the absolute price level has stabilized, and it hasn't. It's actually increasing. And if we think about the pre-Fed era, then what, what we had in that period was a stable absolute price level. If we had a period of inflation, it tended to be followed by a period of deflation. So to whatever extent the Fed has influenced inflation, it has all but eradicated deflation, even the good type of deflation that we would expect to see with aggregate supply improvements. And Jim Grant talked a little bit about some of that sort of stuff this morning. We don't see that anymore, even though we should. Um, so those are my three failures. 
Now, what do we do? Uh, I'll start with sort of what I call the trickier problems. And the way that I think that we should be viewing this, people who want to have these sort of reforms come through, is, thank you. Uh, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, that's 15 minutes, right? Um, these should be viewed as sort of the long-term goals that we have. Uh, how are we going to get these things done? Um, I think my, my main recommendation for these types of reforms is to bring these into something like a formal monetary commission, something like the Centennial Monetary Commission Act of 2013. We're not going to get major structural reforms, I think, without having something like that. And I think next to a private commission would be perfect. I think it would inform, they would, they would inform each other. Um, I, I think that would work fine. So um, some examples of, of what I'm talking about. As Jerry said, basically all of us agree that we should have some sort of rules-based policy instead of a purely discretionary framework. But from there on, it kind of breaks down. Some people want a constant growth rule still. Uh, some people want to do sort of like a, a later on in life Milton Friedman rule of, of uh, shutting down the base, freezing the base, and having competitive issue. Do we go gold? Do we have nominal GDP targeting? Do we, do we use a Taylor rule? And there's still some disagreement over some of that stuff. And I don't want to be the one to pick the rule. Uh, so I think this would be the perfect framework to come up with something like that. There's even disagreement within each of these camps on what the best specific goal standard, the best specific NGDP regime would be. So I think the, the Monetary Commission is the perfect way of doing that. A couple of other examples, again, everybody agrees there should be no more dual mandate, uh, but then that gets you to a price stability rule, and then you're right back where you started. What's the best price stability rule? Um, everybody agrees that the Fed is not really independent, but what do we do about that? Short of getting rid of the Fed, how do you solve that problem? Do you fold it into Treasury? Do you let Congress take over monetary policy? Milton Friedman later on in life argued that, although that might sound crazy, you, you would probably end up with is uh, many more small mistakes and not as many large mistakes. So it's at least something to explore. And if they're folded into Treasury, then you don't have Treasury blaming the Fed and you don't have the Fed blaming Treasury. Um, now, my easy ones, the, the ones that should be no-brainers. This one's going to seem a little bit strange given what I just said. But based on the Federal Reserve Accountability and Transparency Act of 2014, there is absolutely no reason we shouldn't do something like this now. And I, I don't disagree with anything Jerry characterized, any way that Jerry characterized it, but a little bit different in that it's even more flexible. Basically what it says to the Fed is, look, you can pick whatever rule you want and you follow that rule, but if you want to stop following that rule, that's fine too. You just have to come back to Congress and tell us. So it gives them all the flexibility to pick it, all the flexibility to stop it as long as it's made public. So this instantly makes monetary policy more predictable, more transparent. It doesn't get anybody through all these long drawn out debates of what's the best way to do it. And it doesn't tie their hands. There's no reason not to do it. The next one, uh, the fixing their, their broken lender of last resort function. This one's kind of easy. It's just got two parts. Get rid of section 13.3 authority and get rid of the discount window. That's it. Uh, there's, there's no economic rationale for lending directly to, to financial firms. This is the way that they do it, though, through the emergency lending and the discount window. Primarily, that's what they've done. It provides cover. Take it away. If we do that, basically what we're saying is that the Fed should be able to conduct monetary policy through open market operations, which is reasonable. But if we're going to do that, we have to fix the primary dealer system. 
and by fix it, I don't know if, uh, if expand is the right word or kill is the right word, but basically what I'm saying here is you don't want a system dependent on just a small number of large financial institutions, which is what we have now. It perpetuates the SIFI concept, systemically important financial institution, and it doesn't give you the easiest way of providing liquidity to the entire market. So the simple thing to do is let all banks perform, or I'm sorry, participate in uh, monetary policy auctions. The next one, reverse QE. Uh, there's a, a sort of nervousness about doing this. The program's ended now, but we still need to get all the assets off the balance sheet. Some people say, well, we can't do that because it's going to have a contractionary effect. Perhaps, I don't really think so, but the way to combat that is to announce a very long-term, deliberate, slow plan to start getting these assets off. Um, and because I'm running out of time, I'm going to keep going. The next one is the, the end the new repo program. So there's a new program that they're testing. They should end the test. One of the main reasons that they're doing this, that they're involved in the repo market now, is because they've killed the interbank lending market. That's for me. I'm almost done. Uh, they've, killed the, they've killed the interbank lending market with QE. So again, the, the solution isn't to do something new. The solution is to stop doing what broke it. Um, I won't go into any more of those details. But basically, if you look at the slide on the right, this is one of the real reasons that they're doing this. The, the share of lending in our economy, although lending has gone up, the share of lending that's going through depository institutions has steadily fallen since the 1970s. So this is, in a way of, uh, this is a way of them becoming more relevant or staying relevant. Uh, and it's disastrous in that if there is some market instability, basically all the firms, money market firms that are financing commercial paper run to the Fed instead. It makes them a borrower and lender of last resort. Um, it's a terrible idea. It should be shut down. Uh, the next one, and their role as a financial regulator. It's absolutely unnecessary to conduct monetary policy. They don't need to be involved. And it's an absolute joke to suggest that if we got rid of the Fed right now, there would be a lack of regulators. Uh, the next one, just require a full accounting on uh, IOR, interest on reserves. Um, I think it should probably be both a GAO and a Fed account uh, and a Fed report. Make them both do it. Let's just have a full accounting on what it's done. Has it been bad? We think it has. Let's hold them accountable. Uh, the next one, almost done. Uh, the, the sort of general, allow private innovations to flourish. This is not altogether different from some of the talks that we heard this morning. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is let's have a level playing field at the very least. Let's not have any capital gains taxes or sales taxes on anything that is used as a medium of exchange. Let's let people choose what they want to use as a medium of exchange. Um, this is kind of just the same money laundering laws, et cetera. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, so we have uh, time for Q&A. Please wait for the uh, microphone to come. Start with this gentleman right here. Yeah. Uh, my question is about the bonds nominated in gold and, and kind of the mechanics there. Is that something where Treasury can just decide to do that? Is that something where Congress can pass a law telling them to do it? What are the, sort of the mechanics of uh, actually allowing that sort of bond to be created? The way it worked in 1998 when Robert Rubin was uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, 
He just decided it as an initiative of the Treasury to say there are people complaining that they buy Treasury bonds, and then because of inflation, when they when they get their their amount back, the face amount back at maturity, they've lost purchasing power. So how do we compensate them? And so they said, well, whatever inflation is, you will end up getting it back. And then that turned out to be a very useful tool for the Fed because they could then get a sense of um, expectations about future inflation by comparing the yields on the ones that gave that feature to compensate the person for lost purchasing power. So I actually think that I suppose if you had a Republican president and he had a Treasury secretary who wanted to do this, again, as among the array of investment tools offered by Treasury, which they are looking for, new instruments, that um, this could be offered on that basis and also as an educational tool for the Federal Reserve to help them estimate what people are thinking in terms of the dollar being debased relative to commodities, because um, some people are a lot more worried about that than just incremental inflation. They're worried about a big bust in the market because of asset prices. So, you know, I think you could tell the Fed this is good for you. And I think Treasury could say there might be an investor appetite for this. I'd note in the, I think it was in the late 70s, Jimmy Carter issued uh, bond, U.S. bonds that weren't uh, denominated in dollars and uh, marks, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this gentleman right in the middle uh, back here. Hi, Arbonne, President of National Economist Club. My question is regarding uh, deflation and how, following what Gene Grant said today, that we don't really see that anymore, especially falling prices as a result of improvement in productivity. So my question is, would uh, a rule such as the Hayek rule or the productivity norm in which uh, the price level in the quantity theory of money is allowed to fall due to changes in productivity, would that be a step in the right direction for the stability of the financial system. I, I think so. Um, I think if you, but it has to be done the right way. And I think part of it is having, if you're going to freeze the base and you have banks competitively issue, then they can offset changes in velocity. And I mean, I, I mean, I think George could probably speak better or Larry could speak better to it, but I don't see the downside to doing, to doing it that way. My guess also with these complicated rules that you're only going to really know what the right answer is until you have competing currencies operating under different rules, and that's the only way to really figure it out. Uh, gentleman over here on the right. Edwin Vieira, my question is for Judy Shelton on the gold bonds. Uh, if you leave aside the problems that the statutes say that the Treasury cannot pay out gold coin under any circumstances, and that one cannot get specific performance on a gold obligation in the courts of the United States. Uh, and of course, the history that in 33, they repudiated payment on gold bonds in the United States. What guarantees or checks and balances would you foresee that would be necessary to make that kind of an instrument credible? I think uh, what you have to do is actually set aside in advance the amount of gold for what I would suggest be a pilot program. Um, and kind of the numbers I was looking at were uh, 12 million ounces the first year, and that's to mature in five years, another 12 the second, another 12 the third, and, and the same. So at the end of four years, you've, you've potentially 
made vulnerable if people were to cash out in the gold instead of um, the dollar amount. 48 million ounces, and I think that comes straight out of the 261 million ounces, um, and it's set aside. I think it's important that if the U.S. actually has to pay out gold, which we're carrying at $42 per ounce, so I don't think Treasury or anyone can make the case that, oh, this will have a bad budgetary impact. Um, meantime, if it turns out that people start thinking that I'm going to end up opting for the gold because maybe like right now you might have a lot of people saying no one would be interested in this because gold is going down. But if people think it might be going up or they're worried about that and they pay a premium, what a windfall for the government borrowing. I mean, people would oversubscribe for these, especially if it were a pilot program. I think you should um, initially limit it to something like a series double E savings bond. I would uh, set it up as only if you have, if you're a U.S. citizen, you have a Social Security number. There's a limit of ten thousand dollars per year purchase. This is; these are some current uh, restrictions on double savings bonds, and I say that because um, I think it would be really bad if these were immediately snapped up by, say, China or Russia, and people would say you're risking U.S. gold, the family jewels. I've also heard people who are interested in the idea from big investment companies, and they say, no, no, this has to be huge because we might even want to uh, replicate it. There's nothing to prevent an investment company, if they saw demand, from saying, well, we will bundle together a, a treasury instrument um, with a five-year gold futures um, contract, and we'll sell that to replicate whatever the U.S. government might be doing on a pilot program. So then you get the same impact from the market that I'm, I'm hoping you would get. Just, But I think it's important the government be obligated, and we would actually lose some gold if the dollar is debased to that extent, that someone would opt for gold. Uh, Bernard von Nothaus, Monetary Architect, Liberty Dollar, Federal Criminal. Um, I have to say that, Judy, you're the only person up there and you're the only person today that has actually opened the door to some positive action to the atrocious monetary system that we have right now. And as much as I, thank you, and as much as I am indebted to you branding me the Rosa Parks of monetary policy, I do have to ask you with a straight face, is there any reason in hell or in Cato, that we would expect this horrendous government to take any positive action along your brilliant ideas. Very kind of you, Bernard. And you know I admire very much your boldness and audacity. Um, I think you really challenge the Fed in a way I, I quite respect. Um, hope you don't end up paying too big a price for that. Uh, yeah, I have renewed hope. As of Tuesday, I must say. Um, I think, again, we actually came closer than I should really say at this point within the last few years with a, um, with a prominent senator uh, prepared legislative language to introduce it. These were to be called Treasury Trust Bonds. The idea being um, that there's a, we don't, we're not accusing the U.S. government of deliberately debasing the dollar. Um, but it's a trust but veri verify provision that if, if an investment in a treasury ends up 
costing you purchasing power, and you measure purchasing power in terms of this other uh, benchmark, not the CPI, but price of gold, that um, you, you don't lose the gold. So, um, yeah, we came close. We had legislative language. We had the assistance of a former uh, Federal Reserve official, assistance and advice. Uh, he didn't like the language. He thought it was too complex, but it was very much in keeping with an idea that he had proposed in 1981. George? <laughs> Judy, I'm going to keep pressing you on, on this uh, and really referring to the penultimate uh, question because I, I don't think you've addressed the credibility problem which is not the same as whether they could have enough gold to protect themselves against having to devalue or discredit bonds in this case. And in, 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 in posing the, the challenge, I want to remind you that when the Fed suspended gold payments in the 30s, it was still sitting on something like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, a, a rather then substantial sum of excess gold reserves. Right. It never really had run, had not come close to running out excess gold reserves. Second, <clears throat> that uh, the, uh, uh, the courts not only ultimately, of course, uh, abrogated the usual gold promises involved in the monetary system, but, but, but uh, uh, suspended payments on specific, on bonds such as you described that specifically d distinguished between the Treasury owing dollars, which of course meant gold before uh, that time, uh, and uh, uh, the Treasury holding gold ounces itself. These were, you know, the gold bonds of the time, and the government didn't mind abrogating those. Finally, uh, it went the further step, for good measure, of saying that private bonds containing gold clauses also did not have to be honored anymore. Uh, and this was all uh, uh, at a time before the actual confiscation of all the gold holdings. So a government, unless things have changed in the right direction, I have a feeling they may have changed in the wrong one, uh, what would keep this all from happening again? And, and wouldn't that mean that when we really needed this, we couldn't count on it? I think we really need it now. <laughs> I think that part of the reason people have never wanted to put up gold, I suppose, is even though all central banks seem to want to accumulate it, but then they feel like these are the family jewels. Well, this is a family emergency. I think that um, this is the time when we should put it up. And it's in a way, this is so sad that what you're asking is, how do we know that the U.S. government won't pull a scam? Um, I, I mean, here's, here's one thing. Now, I'm, I suggested that the 12 times four years, that would total as a pilot program be 48 million ounces, that's 18% that's of what we hold. What are we holding it for? I mean, Bernanke has been asked this, and I think Ron Paul asked him, why do you even have gold? And, he's, and he said, well, it's just because it's a valuable asset. And he said, why not diamonds? <laughs> I mean, the, the Fed, we have these as, as our exchange reserves, the largest in the world. So why do we have them? I think we should use them. And, um, and, and I would say this, let's say then, let's say you have doubt. Let's say investors then don't want to buy this instrument because they think the U.S. might pull a fast one? Now, what happens if China has issued theirs within a few weeks of this one? 
and the U.S. reneges and China pays off, I don't think we want to be in that position. Jerry, you want to? Yeah, I, I want a, a, fr a friendly amendment here. The first thing I would recommend to Judy is the bill would have to contain an audit of what we hold for there to be credibility. The second, yeah. the second thing is I would suggest the following to address the kind of concerns that George is bringing up legitimately, is the gold would be transferred physically to the vaults of banks in Switzerland and the trust would be governed by Swiss law. I, I think that's actually a great idea. I was, I was going to say we need to um, set this up specifically as collateral in advance, but um, having Switzerland be the holder, uh, I'm fine with that. I, I'm sorry it has to come to that, but if that's what's would, required. Would yeah. the U.S. have to file FATCA paperwork as part of that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, go all the, all the way in the back. Uh. Um, Bertie Lee, banking consultant and gold skeptic. Um, if 48 million ounces, uh, let's say $1,200 uh, an ounce current price, somewhere in that range, we're talking of uh, maybe gold bonds outstanding of, of uh, let's say, in round numbers, $60 billion. Uh, that is maybe, what, one half of 1% of the total debt outstanding. My question is, so what? I mean, what impact is that going to have when you have a tiny percentage of a rapidly growing federal debt that uh, is backed by gold. I mean, what impact is it really going to have? My, my answer is, in, in propounding this idea on Capitol Hill, I have sometimes been told that's just too huge. It's just too big to suggest that the Treasury would, would link a U.S. instrument denominated in dollars to physical gold. That's just, we. I can't take the criticism that this person would say because it'll be seen as a sop to the Tea Party. Or Krugman might say I'm a crazy. Other people have said what you've said. No, it's too small. That's too small an idea. It won't do anything. I think, again, if there's demand, let's say there's huge demand, and the first people who would buy it, especially if it's offered as a savings, a minor savings program, let's say the demand is fantastic. People want to buy it to give to their grandkids. They just think this is amazing. They pay so much for it, a premium. So the, the U.S. is borrowing. At a time when we're a little worried about interest rates going up, the U.S. is suddenly borrowing at, at infinitesimally low rates because people will pay so much for this kind of an instrument. And that's when maybe the big investment banks want to get in the act, and they say, we can duplicate. If there's demand for an instrument that pays either in gold or in dollars, we'll just put these two things together, and that's what we'll sell too. And then it could be as big as it needs to be to have an impact. And meanwhile, if other countries start doing it, um, I think it is not a small deal if, if, the, if people, I mean, look how much attention is paid to TIPS bonds, and they're really just a sliver, but people really pay attention to the difference in yields. Think what would happen if, if financial journalism was focusing on people all opting for the gold instead of the dollars. Because really all the government has to do 
is a little better than expectations in terms of not debasing the dollar relative to commodities, where I'm using gold to keep it simple as a surrogate for asset prices, commodities. This gentleman back here on the right. Uh, Walker Todd, uh, this is primarily for Judy. Uh, quickie on uh, withdrawing from IMF and asking for your gold back. I wrote a paper about that. It's in CMRE number 54 back in 1998. It's a very hard process. It takes five to ten years. The rules have been written to make it very difficult for any country, A, to get out, especially us, and B, even if you get out, uh, don't You'll wait a darn long time before you see your gold. On uh, the question of the sales of uh, or pledges of U.S. Uh, gold to back the Treasury bonds, um, I think it would have been a wiser idea a couple of QEs ago, because I have 2.7 trillion reasons why I think that pool would be the first pool drained pursuing your treasury bonds. Uh, or do you have some reason to think that the foreign banks who hold about one half of the excess reserves uh, would resist the temptation to load up on these gold-backed bonds as a hedge against depreciation of the uh, of the excess reserves they hold? Well, so I would be sensitive on that latter point, which is why I would restrict it to U.S. purchasers to start. Um, so it doesn't look like we're giving our gold reserves away to foreign powers. Um, on the IMF issue, I have a copy of the Articles of Agreement. And uh, Article 26, first, is on the right of members to withdraw. It says, any member may withdraw from the fund at any time by transmitting a notice and writing to the fund at its principal office, withdrawal shall become effective on the date such notice is received. Then it talks about under liquidation, there's a Schedule K, liquidation procedures. But if someone's withdrawing and if, if there's liquidation, so I, I don't know under what circumstances that could be permitted, but the rate is you get 0.888, 671 grams of fine gold, it says, that is equivalent to one special drawing right. Now, that means um, 0.888671 grams of fine, fine gold is 135th of an ounce of gold. So that meant a special drawing right was equal exactly to a dollar, which was 135th of an ounce of gold. And up through 1975, oh, here's a section on liquidation, the fund shall calculate the value of gold held on August 31, 1975, so that was beyond the end of the Brentwood system, that it continues to hold on the date of the decision to liquidate, and it will pay out on the basis of one special drawing right per .888671 grams of fine gold on the date of li liquidation. Now, gold equivalent to the excess based on its market value that value over the latter, meaning what it was worth, it got up to like $42 by the time they ended Bretton Woods, um, will be distributed to those members that were members on August 31, 1975, in proportion to their quotas on that date. Mm -hmm. 
I think this has already been referenced, but how would you actually get either the savings bonds or the withdrawal from the IMF passed with only part of the Republican Party and none of the Democrats on board with it? Well, if the bonds are an initiative of the Treasury Department, then you don't really need congressional approval. Um, and on the IMF, um, there is a lot of, um, I want to use the word resentment, but uh, there are a lot of Republicans who uh, have very stiff resistance to, uh, there will be, the IMF's going to push very hard before the end of this year for approval of the reforms that double their quotas and that would change um, how decisions over how the IMF disperses funds would be made with many U.S. Congress members thinking that that will hurt U.S. representation and influence over those decisions. So I, I, I don't think that uh, the U.S. would hesitate to have a confrontation with the IMF, but I don't know if it would be over this bond idea, but I think people would resent very much if we decided to do that and our Treasury decided to do that and the IMF said, no, you cannot. Do we have anybody who doesn't have questions on the bonds? So we oh, have a little different. No, no, no. It's, 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 all right, this gentleman here. Hi, Carl Golovin. I wonder if any panelist could comment on the success story of Iceland and how it overcame its fin the financial crisis and even prosecuted some of its bankers. Also, instead of Switzerland as a place to hold the gold, why not Iceland? It's a very geopolitically neutral spot and uh, even as a focal point for a new Bretton Woods agreement where each nation could come to hold each, each other accountable to not overinflating their currencies. Well, I mean, I, I know that Iceland wouldn't play ball uh, with the European Union and basically wouldn't bail the banks out and hence the European creditors. And Ireland chose the opposite, uh, uh, made the opposite decision. And they both did very well. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's clean. That's all. I don't think it's clean. And uh, I admire what the Icelanders did. And I think the Irish people were brutalized. But they did recover. Just the gentleman back here. Oh, William Luther Kenyon College. Uh, maybe with the exception of uh, Judy's proposal, it seems like uh, the other two are advocating a kind of a gradual approach. So I'm just wondering um, how you reconcile that with the idea that uh, with each step closer you get towards the ideal, the benefits of taking an additional step are smaller. I didn't. I didn't give a timeline. Yeah. I. I, I mean. I. It, you know, people want me to be, uh, several people have commented on my paper and say, could you give us more specifics? Well, I start then having to predict what the commission is going to do, which defeats the idea of a commission. But I, I certainly know that I would like it to see that all of the legal restrictions on competitive currencies, that would be part, of, I would hope would be part of the recommendation, eliminating them, in which case it would be very much along the lines of what Jerry Jordan is talking about you would begin to get private market substitutes, which would then make it easier, i.e. less costly, to go to the next step because the market would already produce some of what you're hoping would come out. That, that would be my inclination. 
And, and over the last few years, uh, well, really over the last year and a half, House Financial Services has come up with a, a bunch of different bills. And with the Senate flipping over to the Republican control now, with Shelby in particular on the Senate Committee uh, for Banking, there's somebody in the Senate sympathetic to a lot of what was done in the House. So if you look at something like uh, removing the regulatory authority, if you look at the the the, uh, the Heizenga Garrett approach of going to, and telling the Fed you have to pick a rule. Um, there's another one that's uh, and well N thirteen three authority. It there's there's at least better than a fifty fifty shot now that you have somebody in both chambers ready to go with a bill on that. I mean they were already in the House and now you have somebody who's highly sympathetic to those ideas in the Senate. So I I, I didn't say anything about gradual. I have a question for Norbert. I, I think it's great that Heritage is getting involved in, in monetary affairs. Nathan Lewis, I spoke earlier. Uh, you had a very nice rundown of, of various sort of rules-based systems uh, that have, people have been proposing for probably 40 years now. Uh, I gave the example of fixed value systems, whether linked to gold or linked to dollars, euros. Uh, they've lasted for hundreds in years or decades for euro-based ones. Is there any example of any of these other systems, such as a Taylor rule or you know, grow the base money supply by 3% a year, in any currency in the world that has lasted for more than 12 months? I uh, don't think so, but I, I, you know, I, again, sort of... I was just shaking his head, though. So. <laughs> same spirit of Jerry, though. If you're going to propose a commission, I'm not going to presuppose what they pick. And, and I, I don't want to get into the fight of everybody uh, or with everybody over which rule is going to be best. So. Okay. One, one last question in the middle here. This is for Norbert. Uh, Brad Jansen, editor of freebanking.org. So Jerry talked about getting rid of, getting with U.S. withdrawal from the IMF and restituting the gold back. Judy wants to then use those for gold bonds. Norbert, you didn't, I don't think you got to the part in your paper where you wanted to end the exchange stabilization fund and then use the bond, the euros and yen to put out bonds for those too, or would you be interested in that? All right, I ran out of time, so I... You got, you got one. You got one minute now. If you <laughs> no, I thank you, Bradley. Thank you for the question. Uh, <laughs> All right. With that, that, I'd like to thank the panel. Jim, Jim, Jim will now uh, close the conference for us. Well, I, I wasn't planning on giving closing remarks for fifteen minutes, and I won't do that because uh, it's getting late and everybody's hungry and thirsty. Um, but they, they put this in because uh, Axel Lionhoford, uh, who's an old friend and he was supposed to give the luncheon talk today, um, was unable to attend the conference uh, for health reasons, although Axel's doing very well, so he's probably going to hit 100 one of these days. Um, but of course, uh, for those that uh, are familiar with his work, uh, he's a very renowned, renowned economist. He, he, he's written some very uh, path-breaking uh, works, especially his book uh, on, on Keynes. Uh, and I, I studied that when I was in graduate school with Leland Yeager. And I think uh, Ben McCallum was at University of Virginia at about the same time. And um, I decided, I talked to uh, Axel, 
and uh, told him I would give a brief summary of his paper, and it, it's in, indeed a very brief summary. So uh, I'm going to uh, just read some passages uh, from his paper, which will be published uh, in the Cato Journal along with the other uh, conference papers after the normal review process. And um, it'll give you a flavor of what he's talking about. But before I do that, I just want to mention one thing, talking about Ben McCallum. Uh, there's also, besides the Taylor rule, the McCallum rule, which I actually think is better than the Taylor rule. And it used to be reported in the St. Louis Fed, along with the Taylor rule. I don't know whether they still do that or not. I, yeah. So um, you should uh, take, take a good look at that, too. And we did a Cato journal on these types of things a long time ago, uh, say probably 15 years ago or so. Uh, and the title of the, that journal, based upon the monetary conference, was Toward a Forecast-Free Monetary Regime. So if you've been involved in, in monetary history and stuff, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, that's why I think Jerry O'Driscoll is correct that we do need some type of a private uh, commission uh, that spurs this stuff on. And I think there is a real opening right now, especially with... Uh, uh, Kevin Brady and Jeb Henserling's work. Uh, they want to look at the history of the Fed over its 100-year history, and they want to talk about alternatives. So I think it would be an excellent time for Cato's new center to get involved with us. And uh, we'll talk to Jerry and uh, Judy and other people about that, uh, you know, after, after the conference. So let me just summarize uh, quickly. Um, about five minutes at the most, uh, Axel's paper. The title of his paper is Monetary Muddles. And these are all direct quotes from his paper. He begins by saying, changes in financial regulation and in the conduct of monetary policy have not only played a very significant role in generating the financial crisis, but have also been important in bringing about a large shift in the distribution of income over the last two or three decades. He goes on to say that money is not neutral in the present monetary regime. Of course, money's never really been neutral. It's obvious that monetary policy has had very significant effects on the allocation of productive resources uh, in the long run up to the crisis. And it's per perhaps less obvious that it's also affected the distribution of income. And he places a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, third point, intertemporal equilibrium models, such as the, uh, the uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, uh, do not incorporate financial markets, he points out. And certainly these uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models did not offer much help in understanding the events of recent years. And I couldn't agree with him more on, on that point. He also takes up a theme that Jim Grant has, has talked about, and that is uh, incorporation meant limited liability for the investment banks and no direct liability for its executives. The incentives for executives in the industry changed uh, dramatically. Uh, in other words, when, when they used to have partnerships, they had uh, much more uh, uh, responsibility uh, than under a, a, a corporate, corporate limited liability form. Five, in the run-up to the recent crisis, central banks thought they were controlling the price level, 
but they were also keeping the real interest rates too low and ended up funding a huge credit boom. Of course, this is a Wixellian notion. Uh, Newt Wixell had, had a big impact on, um, on Lionhoofer's thinking. Six, I, I would have the Fed uh, retake control of the monetary base. I would tie demand liabilities of all sorts, that is not just bank deposits, but also deposits with money market funds to the monetary base by reserve requirements. Point seven, and th this is the one I think is uh, very vintage uh, uh, Lionhoofer. Financial systems can become fragile. When this is the case, one default can trigger an avalanche of defaults. Most avalanches are small and self-limiting, but in extreme cases, they can take down very large portions of the web of contracts. A major collapse of the web will be associated with a breakdown in the economic organization of a country and widespread unemployment of labor and other resources. But it is more serious than that. A default avalanche leaves a myriad of broken promises. And I like that idea, a myriad of broken promises in its wake. Social relations are disrupted by distrust and recriminations all around. Effective political action becomes almost impossible. Extremist movements on the right and the left threaten the stability of the political order. It is of the utmost importance, therefore, that a great collapse of the web be stopped. This means, he goes on to say, political choices have to be made to determine who bears the losses from this collective miscalculation. And then he goes on, uh, we're up to point number nine, actually, on my points. Uh, the independence doctrine, however, this relates to the Fed's independence, is predicated on the distributional neutrality of central bank policies. Once it's realized that monetary policy can have all sorts of distributional effects, the independence doctrine becomes impossible to defend in a democratic society. And the final concluding sentence that I pulled out, it's not clear that the economics profession has drawn this conclusion yet. So there's a, lot, there's a lot more in his paper, and I highly recommend it. And I've, I've got to tell you that the paper that he has in the folder, that's a preliminary paper, as are most of these papers are preliminary, because the authors always have uh, time after the conference to uh, make any uh, revisions and then go through the editorial process and so forth. Now, I'm looking for good ideas. After doing this for 32 years, you know, you got to come up with different titles, and sometimes I worry I'll come up with the same title I did 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so I'm always looking for new ideas. So if you have any good ideas, feel free to email me, and I'd be glad to uh, uh, think about them. And also, since we started this new Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives with George Selgin as the director, we're going to be doing a lot of activities. We've got a terrific... Um, uh, academic Advisory Council. In fact, uh, Ben McCallum's on it. We have two Nobel laureates on it, Tom Sargent, Vernon Smith. We have a number of other distinguished monetary economists on it. We're going to be working with them. We're going to be working with new adjunct and older adjunct scholars that we have and senior fellows. So we're going to have a big um, uh, push-up in our, in our monetary work. And I'm glad that we'll be also working with Heritage and and uh, Atlas and uh, other organizations as well. Um, and as I said, the 
The next event for the, the, the center will be November 18th uh, with uh, Jim uh, Grant's book uh, forum. Finally, I'd like to thank all the speakers for the excellent job you've done today. It was, uh, I, I actually stayed awake all day, which is, uh, you know, if, it's funny when you're a professor, as I was for many years, and I'm, I'm not teaching anymore because I'm devoting my time to Cato all my time, but um, when you have to sit and listen to other people, you wonder, wow, you gotta really keep people's attention. It's tough to do for you know, an entire day. Uh, so I wanna thank all the speakers uh, for their careful presentations, and I'm looking forward to working with them on their papers for the Cato Journal. And I'd like to thank again Patrick Byrne uh, and Overstock for sponsoring uh, the reception we're going to have in a few minutes. It'll be a great reception. So enjoy yourself at the reception. Have a safe trip home. Thanks again. <laughs>